We've looked at the first three. Today we look at the middle saying, number four. Next week I plan on combining sayings five and six. Fortunately, they're both in the same gospel, the gospel of John. And then on Palm Sunday, we will deal with the seventh saying of Christ from the cross. We do have a Good Friday service uh, on Good Friday before Resurrection Sunday at 6.30. We're actually going to be joined by Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. So they'll be coming over here in between the two congregations. We'll have a Good Friday observance. So here's what we've got. These are the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. We've already looked at, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, a word of forgiveness. We've looked at, today you will be with me in paradise, spoken to one of the thieves on the cross, a word of salvation. Last week we looked at his words to Mary, his mother, and John, his disciple. He said, woman, behold your son. And I should have uncapitalized that son because I think she was speak- he was speaking to John, not in, in reference to himself. Woman, behold your son, John. And then to John, behold your mother a word of provision or affection. And then there are three hours of darkness, which we'll talk quite a bit about today, as much as you can. And we don't have three hours, we only have minutes. And we've dealt with it in the past. We went through, the last gospel I went through was Mark, not all that many years ago. And we spent a lot more time on Mark's version of what happened at the crucifixion. And there was more detail given then. But uh, we'll spend a little bit of time on the three hours of darkness And then at the conclusion of those three hours, there are four sayings in succession. The saying we're looking at today is Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have it listed as a cry of anguish. But historically in the church, if you want a more historical term, it's a cry of dereliction. It's rarely called a cry of dereliction today because we don't have a great understanding of what It means to be a cry of dereliction. Uh, It's a word that isn't used as frequently in our culture anymore. If you're derelict in your duties, it means you're, you're absent. It means you're neglectful. It means you're not tending to. So to call Christ's words on the cross at the conclusion of these three hours of darkness a cry of dereliction, it's that the Father is in some sense, derelict, not in a sinful, wrong sense, but he's absent. He's not tending to the Son. He's not showing forth his love toward his Son in these, in these hours. He's absent. The Son is abandoned. It's a cry of dereliction. And then we'll pick up with the last three sayings uh, in the weeks to come. So this morning, we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. Our choice was to be in either Matthew's Gospel or Mark's Gospel, Both are very similar as to what they record, but we'll use Matthew's gospel. It provides a little bit more detail than Mark's gospel, which is probably not surprising. It's a longer gospel. To give you a little bit of a running start, uh, because I don't want to read the entire narrative, here's what Matthew has recorded. We're going to pick up at verse 45, but prior to verse 45, here is what you see as Matthew narrates the crucifixion scene. What we find, number one, in verses 27 to 31, we see the Roman soldiers' mistreatment of Jesus. This is prior to his crucifixion. Them mocking and scorning him prior to crucifixion. And then in verse 32, as Jesus is making his way to the crucifixion scene, you have 
uh, the Romans pulling out a man, Simon of Cyrene, to bear Jesus' cross. It's not explicitly told in either Matthew or Mark why that is necessary. It's easy to imagine Jesus is either slower than what the Romans want him to be, or Jesus is, if you've ever seen any sort of a movie, he usually is stumbling under the weight of the cross, given the way he's been treated and his lack of sleep, his lack of of strength at this point. But the Gospels never actually tell you why, but for whatever good reason, Simon is pulled from the crowd or from the road, and he bears Jesus' cross. Then in verses 33 through the first part of verse 35, Jesus is offered a, a mixture of wine and gall before being nailed to the cross. Jesus tastes it and he rejects it. So this would be a little bit of a, a narcotic type drink before he's crucified, but they're getting ready to, to pound in the nails and Jesus refuses the drink. He doesn't want uh, his suffering, his pain to be alleviated by that such a narcotic at that particular moment. He's going to bear the full weight of this suffering and drink the cup of the Father's Father's wrath. The second part of verse 35 through verse 38, the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothes, as is true in all of the Gospels. And then the crucifixion scene is described in brief. The inscription over his head, the fact that there are two thieves or two criminals, two outlaws, also crucified with Jesus, Uh, We've seen that in the Gospels we've looked at prior to this point. Lastly, in verses 39 to 44, Jesus is mocked by passers-by. He's mocked by an assortment or every category of Jewish leadership. And then you've got the thieves also joining in the mockery and the scorn. And that's a predominant theme in the Gospels as well. That they're mocking, calling... If you're the Son of God, save yourself and us. And if you're who you say you are, come down from the cross as they mock and they scorn. All categories of people mocking Jesus in those moments. With that, let me read verses 45 through 54. Now now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now, in our English it would read like, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, but I know it's not pronounced Eli, Eli in Hebrew. It would be more like, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, though not recorded what he said in Matthew's gospel, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Well, the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So that's Matthew's version, and that's his setting for Christ's fourth saying, from the cross. Here's what we want to look at. We want to look at what Matthew emphasizes, what he draws our attention to. Uh, 
as he portrays the crucifixion scene, and it's very similar to Mark's gospel. I think what I'm saying about Matthew is, is very close. You can almost say the exact same things about Mark's gospel. Not entirely so, but closely so. Three things. Number one, I want you to see what is perhaps not obvious. Number two, I want you to see what is very obvious that he emphasizes. And then number, number three is what is less obvious. So there's something that perhaps you might miss if you don't pause. There's something that I think if you read it and thought about it at any length, you would say, well, it's pretty obvious he emphasizes this. And then there's a third thing that's perhaps less obvious. What is perhaps not obvious is that Matthew emphasizes what Jesus says. I say it's perhaps not obvious because it's only one verse. It's only one saying. And it may not seem obvious, but the fact that We know Jesus said seven things from the cross, and Matthew and Mark each only record this one. They don't record any of the prior three, nor do they record any of the last three. Matthew and Mark both say, now he cried out again, but they don't tell you what he cried out, because they mean to emphasize, Matthew and Mark both mean to emphasize this one saying. And it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Jesus I think on some level, he wants everybody else to hear it. Everybody at the scene, he wants them to hear this saying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew and Mark record only that saying so that here we are 2,000 years later and we're reading that one saying in each of those Gospels. It's meant to be highlighted. We are meant to get some, but it's not spoken to us. It's not a question he's asking the people around him. It's a question directed to God. Neither Matthew or Mark really give a clear answer to the question. Though from what we know of Scripture, we can say certain things about it. But the question is left unanswered in both narratives. What is obvious in Matthew's recording of this crucifixion scene is that Matthew emphasizes miraculous signs. Uh, you've got three hours of darkness. You've got uh, the, the curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom at his death. You've got the earth shaking and rocks split and, and some bodies, some saints are resurrected. And after Jesus' resurrection, they go into the holy city. They go into the city. And the last, the last miracle that's emphasized, I think, although Matthew, it's less clear, the last miracle is a, a Roman centurion places his faith make some confession of faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And if, in fact, that's true, it's somewhat, it's not a unanimous opinion, but it seems to me the majority of people I'm reading think it's a genuine confession of faith by the centurion. Again, it's not as clear in Matthew's gospel. In other gospels, it seems more clear. But that's the greatest miracle of all, that that, that any sinner ever believes is a miracle of God's grace. So that's obvious. What is less obvious is why Matthew emphasizes those miraculous signs. He doesn't really provide a lot of explanation. And when we get to the sign of of some bodies being resurrected and coming out of the grave and going into the holy city after Jesus is resurrected, you could ask me a lot of questions when it comes to comment and question time, and I'm probably going to say, I don't know. Did they die again? Did Did they go to... At what point did they go to heaven? I mean, what kind of bodies did they have? Were they recognized as saints? Who did they talk to? Matthew doesn't tell us any of those things. So I could only be speculating. 
So I don't know exactly why we have all those miraculous signs, but clearly it's something Matthew means to emphasize. He means to draw your attention to those miraculous signs. Having said that, uh, I'll give you a possible explanation as to how this might be constructed or put together. One reason why Matthew might have arranged the material the way he did, and it's, uh, it's not clear, it's just one possible way. It would look something like this. We know, first of all, Jesus cries out with the saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then shortly thereafter, he dies. Or the way that the Gospels read, he didn't just passively die. The way the Gospels read is he yielded up his spirit. He yielded up his spirit. Uh, Which is something that ordinary people do not do, where you don't choose your moment of death. It would seem Jesus did. And perhaps that's part of the surprise when the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of the other two criminals so that they would die more quickly. They were surprised that Jesus was already dead. And it may partly be explained by the fact that Jesus chose to yield. He yielded and gave up his spirit and chose his moment of death, having said all that needed to be said up to that point. After that... Matthew records three effects or three responses to what's transpired in this crucifixion scene. The first response is misunderstanding and dullness. Jesus makes that cry, and there's some people, I think he's calling for Elijah. And some people want to give him a drink, and say, no, let's wait and see if Elijah comes. Completely lost on them, all that's transpired. The three hours of darkness, completely lost on them. What Jesus has said prior to that point, which Matthew doesn't record, but if they were there, they heard it, completely lost on them. So there's a, there's a dullness among most of the people there, a misunderstanding. The second response to what Matthew has recorded is affirmation and confirmation. And that affirmation and confirmation comes from God through creation, through those miraculous signs. For hours, Jesus has been taunted. For six hours, just on the cross, he's been taunted and mocked and scorned. And if you're the Messiah, and if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross, and God's answer through creation is, this is the Son of God. Oh yes, this is the Son of God. By those miraculous signs, by that darkness. Creation is witnessing to what in fact is true. What in fact they are misunderstanding about and they are dullness to believe and dullness to hear and dullness to see. That's the second response. The third response is comprehension and faith. And that would be the Roman centurion. Especially, uh, as I keep saying, if you put it together with the other Gospels. The Roman centurion, is uh, he not only confirms and affirms, I think he expresses faith in Christ as being the Son of God. While it's lost on most of the Jews, while it's lost on the, on the scribes and the elders and the chief priests who are dull and slow to believe, it's all lost. But a Roman centurion places his faith in Christ at the cross, if in fact that's the best way to take what just transpired. Let's back up and talk about the time of day. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Uh, Jewish time reckons from sun up until sundown. We start counting the hours of a day starting at midnight. But time was less precise. They didn't wear wristwatches 
and uh, it was less precise in their day. So they didn't start at midnight, they started at sunrise. So Mark's gospel says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. So 6 o'clock to the third hour would be at 9 o'clock is when Jesus' actual crucifixion took place. There were three hours on the cross, and then there are these, this, this time of darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. From noon until 3 o'clock, there's a darkness. Now, that suggests, or it clarifies certain things. This darkness cannot be attributed to an eclipse. For one thing, it's, for one thing, it's three hours of darkness. Another thing, it's Passover time, which is a time that is in conjunction with a full moon. And there, my understanding is you don't have eclipses of darkness during any kind of a full moon. So you've got three hours of darkness, has nothing to do with an eclipse. It's three hours of darkness in spite of the fact that from noon to three o'clock should be the brightest, hottest part of the day. If there should ever be a time when it is not dark, it's from noon to three. And this is the three hours of darkness that settles on all the land. Lenski, as well as a lot of commentators, call this wholly miraculous, which I'm completely comfortable with. That this could be, this could very well be just, it can't be explained any other way other than it's a miracle of God. And, and then you're going to look, well, if the sun were actually darkened, what would that mean so far as heat and, and everything else? How does that work in the solar system? And I don't have to explain that. It could be wholly miraculous, and God can take care of all of that. Some people would say that this is a, a good number of commentators point to this being a fulfillment of a very specific, well, I guess I've got this, that this wouldn't be surprising given Jesus' birth. And then I'll get to what some people say about the prophets. At Jesus' birth, it was night. And lo, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. So at his birth, there was light at darkness. At his death, there's darkness when you would expect light. So there's kind of a juxtaposition there. Um, some people think this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Amos chapter 8. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now that had its own historical significance in some lesser fashion in Amos's day. But if in fact that is meant to point to the cross of Christ it would reach its fulfillment, its greatest fulfillment, in what happened in those three hours of darkness, just like the Lord said he would do in the book of Amos. Uh, I'm not going to quibble that it could be entirely miraculous. I have no problem with that. I think if that's exactly how God wants to work it, uh, I'll leave the details to him. I think it's also possible in my own mind that this darkness could be a very thick cloud cover like sometimes you get here, although this I think would be unprecedented in history. I think it would be darker than any other time in history. But there's sometimes through the summer where you get a really thick cloud cover and it becomes so dark and stormy that you wind up using your headlights and it could be in the middle of the afternoon in the middle of summer. I think it could be something like that, only even more so. I think this would be the, the, the utmost extreme of that incident Though I'm not going to quibble if you want to make it a miracle, because I think it could be that as well. We'll never fully understand the darkness. I think that's an important point. The time I first heard that point ever taught was by Holmes Moore, 
who was a pastor down in the St. Louis area, Maplewood, Missouri. He pastored Bible Baptist Church or Baptist Bible Church. I, I get the Baptists and the Bibles mixed up which one comes first. But he was a terrific preacher. He was on Christian radio, and it was through his ministry my parents actually became believers. We were raised Lutheran, but they really didn't have a, hadn't had a uh, conversion experience where their only hope is in Christ is the one who takes away sin. So it's through Holmes Moore's ministry, and I've been down to his church. Back in the day, I used to go down. Uh, once a year, they'd do a conference down there, and I would go down to the conference. It was quite a good conference. But Holmes Moore talked about uh, the, the darkness that settled in on the land, because there's a mystery associated with Christ's atonement. And When Christ became the sin bearer and took away sin, when he bore the penalty of sin, it happened in those three hours of darkness. It was finished by the time he yielded and gave up his spirit. It was already over with. Atonement was already won. Reconciliation was already made. It wasn't waiting for him to die. It was made in those three hours of darkness. So the mystery of Christ taking away sins happened in a period of darkness, which is at least meant to symbolize we can't fully understand what it meant that a lamb of God, a perfect lamb of God, could become a sin bearer to take away sin and take away guilt. Not only the penalty and not only the power of sin, but the very presence of sin from creation will be removed by this sin bearer, by this perfect sacrifice. So there's an element in which we can't fully understand. I think that's important. But the closest we can come, so far as Matthew's gospel is concerned, Matthew talks about this darkness without, without really providing an explanation. But the closest he comes to an explanation is by what he says next. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, I'll just skip down to the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness is meant to be very closely associated with this idea of being forsaken. Christ on the cross, being forsaken. That's that's not a pretty word. That's a very ugly word. Probably, if you've lived very long, you've had an experience in your life where you have felt deserted and forsaken and left behind and not cared for or abandoned. I remember the first time I ever felt that was... uh, I don't know how old I was, but I was a young lad, and, and this was uncharacteristic of my parents because they really didn't take us a lot of places. But uh, we went to the fun fair at Fairview Park. Decatur used to have the fun fair at Fairview Park, and we went to the fun fair at Fairview Park, a little carnival area. I think that stuff is what wound up down at, at, uh, by the lakeshore. They took that stuff and put it down there, and I forget what they called it down by the lake. What was it called down there? Like a fun area, carnival? It was there the whole time. What was it? Funland. Was it Funland? Toyland. Okay. Joyland. Okay. But at any rate, I remember being at at, uh, at Fairview Park at this fun fair, and uh, I remember I was lost. Uh, I don't know that I was lost from my parents' perspective, but from my perspective, I had no idea where they were in a sea of people. And I remember feeling very panicky and very alone and very afraid. And in a much greater sense, Jesus on the cross, it describes him as being forsaken, abandoned, a cry of dereliction, not being cared for, not being thought of, a cry of dereliction. So Christ on the cross 
is forsaken. That's associated with this idea of darkness, which we can't fully understand. And this is accentuated by the fact, if you think about what has taken place in Jesus' life, really just earlier in the week. Because this is on Friday. So on, on Sunday before, what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem, and he's been hailed as the Son of David and Hosanna, the one who saves. And as he's uh, ridden into Jerusalem and he's in the temple complex, there's even some Gentiles, some Greeks, that want to meet him. And in, and in the course of what takes place there in John's Gospel, it reads like this. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. And then Jesus prays to his Father, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You can tell there's a relationship there. He's not crying, my God, my God, glorify your name, but Father, glorify your name. And then the Father answers, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The response to that, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel spoken to him, just as dull. Just as misunderstanding as five days later when they're around the cross and Jesus cries out about being forsaken and, and they think he's calling for Elijah. Not understanding what's taking place. Not understanding how all of this is in fulfillment of what the law and the prophets and the Psalms have always written. It's completely lost on them. Jesus responds... Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. When the Father says, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. Jesus says, that wasn't for my benefit. That was for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He'll be forsaken on the cross. The Father will glorify his name. And through him being forsaken, he will draw all people to himself. From every tribe, nation, tongue, language, from every remote corner of the earth will be drawn to this individual. Because salvation is found in no other name. And the gospel will go out. Let's back it up just one step further. I don't know how many days earlier, but just I think it's just a couple days earlier before Palm Sunday, you've got another incident where Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave after he's been in there for four days. And before he does that, Jesus prays to his father. It goes like this. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, not my God, but Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus says just days earlier, just over a week earlier, my father always hears me. On the cross, the Father's not only not hearing, the Father has abandoned the Son. He has forsaken the Son. More than just not hearing. But Jesus says, even in this moment, I say this on account of the people. It's a message for the people. There's a lesson to be learned from this. So when Jesus on the cross says, My, fa- my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that's, that's not for, in some sense, it's not for his benefit. It's for the people's benefit. They're to get something out of that. Why would Jesus, in this moment, under these circumstances, when he said so little, 
Why now does he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's changed? What's changed? Paul describes what's changed a good while later. I think it takes time for the gospel writers and for Christians to understand what has, what has changed between my father always hears me and my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Paul describes it this way when he writes his, what we call the second letter to the Corinthians. He writes, for our sake... He made him, the Father made the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in in him we might become the righteousness of God. What changed? He became the sin bearer. What changed? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What changed? He says, I give my life a ransom for many. That's what's changed. On the cross, he assumed sin. Though he'd lived in perfect fellowship with his father, in perfect obedience to his father, he became sin so that his people would would receive righteousness. Sufficient for the world. Efficient for all who believe. The darkness. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land associated with Christ's cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness is a term... Uh, I've got a dictionary. Rich knows about it because he borrowed it once. Uh, the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, where it takes all these different words in, in Scripture and how they become images for communicating what God wants to communicate as important. And darkness, it describes in this dictionary as it is a uniformly negative image. In other words, it's, darkness in Scripture is never a good thing. It's always a negative thing. And yet... It, The dictionary says, however, God rules sovereignly even over the darkness. The dictionary says, in short, darkness keeps some very bad company. Light is the generic biblical image for divine favor and human prosperity. Darkness is accordingly the absence of these things. Darkness, the word darkness or dark occurs in scripture more than 400 times. But there's one book in particular in all of the Bible where it disproportionately appears. More than 400 times altogether. But one book of the Bible, it disproportionately appears. Does anybody want to take a guess as to what book it is? Not Exodus. Not Exodus. It is in the Old Testament, though. It is in Job. The word darkness and darkness, dark and darkness occurs more in Job than any other book of the Bible. Because in Job, there's a mystery as to why Job is suffering. And there's a mystery as to God answering any of Job's questions. Because Job really doesn't get his questions answered. God asks Job a lot of questions. So there's a darkness and a mystery as to what's taking place in Job. Just as there's a darkness and a mystery as to what's taking place on the cross. And we can't fully understand. Ours is left to believe. Ours is left to recognize this is the record of Scripture. And God is accomplishing things we don't fully understand or fully appreciate. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Darkness is associated with judgment and separation. Judgment is... I could give you so many passages of judgment being associated with darkness, as well as separation. Isolation from God. On the cross, Jesus is is being judged as a guilty sinner. 
On the cross, Jesus is being isolated from his Father. Uh, I I don't take that as a split within the Trinity. I take that as an absence of any benefit or awareness that the Father... Uh, he sent under the love and care of his father. I don't think it's a split in the Trinity. There's a, we could talk about that a long time, but I won't. Regarding this judgment and separation, Isaiah says this. Isaiah 53, we were there probably last year. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It's the will of the Lord to crush him on the cross. It's the will of the Lord to judge him on the cross. It's the will of the Lord to absent the presence of his, the blessing of his presence from his son on the cross. And it's what Isaiah 53 speaks of. Um, I don't know what's supposed to be there, so I'll go to the next slide. Uh, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now very quickly, I think most of you are aware that in the, in the temple, a high priest is only allowed in the most holy place once a year. And only priests are ever allowed in the holy place uh, probably every day to light the candles and to burn the incense. Uh, but very specified times. And between the holy place where only priests could go and the most holy place where only the high priest could go once a year, there was a very thick curtain. Not like these curtains where you can still see some daylight coming through or sunlight coming through the curtain. It's not like that curtain. It's a very thick curtain. Talk about room darkening, room blackening. These would be room blackening if there were no other light. And that curtain is torn from top to bottom. And if you want to read more about what's taking place, you can read on your own. Read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. Because what you find out is that God is... I think what God is doing is saying, we don't need the old order of sacrifice. We don't need the old priest. We don't need a high priest. We don't need lambs being offered. None of that is necessary any longer because all of that was meant to point to this moment where this lamb died and it's finished. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. It's a better covenant built on better promises with a better effect. Everything about it is better. And so the old is torn from top to bottom, signifying God is saying we're finished with the old order. And now it's time to transition to Christ, being the fulfillment of everything that was spoken of before, looked forward to. Then you've got all these other ands. And there's even an and that's not translated in the ESV Bible, but it's there. So they're like stacked up. And it's kind of, a, it's kind of an awkward way if you're writing a, a, a good paper and, in a literature class and, and the professor may say, like, you way too many conjunctions, way too many ands. But that's the way Matthew wrote it. He's stacking it up. So Christ dies on the cross, verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and... Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. He just keeps layering it on, stacking it up. This is all what happened after he died. 
This is a monumental event, greater than any of us could possibly understand. But all those ands speak something of the significance of that particular event, when he died. Your comments and questions. Deborah. What's that? Uh, that would be easy to find out, but I don't have it up here. Uh, I, I don't think there was any... I mean, I'm, I would suspect it has to be the same word that's used in Hebrews where Christ says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So the fact that he was forsaken, Christians are given the promise. What we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is Christ's promise. Because he was forsaken, I have the promise, I will never be left or forsaken. Uh, but I could, it'd be easy enough to print off a list of places where that's used. Uh, I think I looked at it and I didn't see anything notable that would help for this understanding. I could be wrong. Somebody else? Jonathan, and then Janice. I think it's interesting that it's, these arguments about darkness, but that's... Because that's far worse than all of the mockings, all of the beatings, all of the crown of thorns, all of the shed blood. That is nothing compared to his father abandoning him on the cross. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the real, the real taking away of sin took place during those three hours of darkness. And I think Jesus, I mean, this is somewhat specul- speculative, but I think Jesus got a glimpse of those three hours when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he took his disciples to pray. And then he took the inner three a little further in, and then Mark's Gospel says, and he began to be, and he became, I forget the word it used, but he's like in anguish of soul. I think he's getting a glimpse of what's going to take place on those three hours of darkness. And, and that's when he's praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. The cup of judgment, the cup of bearing the wrath, your wrath against sin, if it be possible. Uh, it's, it's very interesting, if, we, if I'd had time to develop that theme, which I didn't. Here's, I mean, I, I hate to comment on medical community too much, but here's my, here's, the older I get, Cindy and I talk about, like, this is what happens in the medical community, it seems to me. Like, before a procedure or before whatever, they, they're like, you need this done. You want this done. This is going to be such a good thing. And then after you have the surgery, and you're like, oh, this is like, I feel like I've been run over by a truck. And they're like, well, what do you expect of a surgery? It's like, well, you didn't tell me it was going to be this bad. They, they don't tell you, like, after... So my story yet, no, I won't even go there. I'm, I'm, I've got like a Grover's disease, which is a reaction to the shingles vaccine. Uh, and I've had it for 10 weeks, and they say it could last 6 to 12 months. So it's basically like having poison ivy over parts of your body, and they can't control it. So if you ever see me and I'm like, you know. <laughs> uh, but they didn't tell me that before I got the shingles vaccine. They're just, my doctor's like, this is a good thing. And I know you had the earlier shingles vaccine, but this one is even better than that one. So I got the shingles vaccine, and now I've got Grover's disease, which is lasting longer than I thought. Uh, So I'm looking for remedies. (laughs) But at any rate, Christ knew exactly what was going to take place when he died on the cross. He knew exactly what it meant, which is why he prayed with anguish in the garden. The Father didn't keep that from him. The Father didn't say like, oh, you know, you're going to be, I'm going to send you down to earth and and it's going to be wonderful and, and, uh, you know, many people are going to believe in you and and people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, they're all going to believe and it's like, oh, this is such a good thing, I'm on, you know. 
Jesus knew exactly what it meant. What it means is this. You will be abandoned on the cross. You will, you will live as a servant. You will die a criminal's death among criminals. I will abandon you on the cross. And he's seen this in the garden. And he's saying, Father, if there's any other way. But there is no other way. Oh, Janice. That's a good question. I'm not sure. I think they're the ones that, they're definitely the ones that popularized it. And they may have been the ones that initiated it. Like they're the ones that first got the practice going. I don't know that they were the only ones that did it. But they, the Romans crucified people in the years that they ruled by the thousands. It was, it was not like, uh, you know, in, in America, we have, depending on the state, there's still capital punishment. And you can probably count on one hand how many people are actually killed through capital. But in the Roman world, uh, by the thousands. By the thousands. Do you? Yeah, yeah. And he knew it. He knew exactly why he was coming. He knew exactly why he was coming. Anyone else? Lori? I'll leave that to theologians better than me. I mean, I think death is, re- death is required. There is, a, there is a death involved because he's going to be raised himself with a glorified body and be the first fruits of all those that rise from the grave. So all of that, is, it's all part of a package deal. But I think the mystery of taking away sins took place in the three hours, which is why Jesus is able to say, in saying number six, it's really just one word in the Greek, finished. Finished. Oh, it, it requires him being abandoned by the Father. It requires that isolation and separation. So, again, the, the atonement isn't accomplished because the Romans put a crown of thorns on him. You know, or they beat him. I mean, it's all part of his suffering, but that's not the atonement. So, you're, I mean, honestly, those are good questions, and they're, it's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd probably not next week either. Uh, Sarah, did you have something? Yeah, I think there may be a spectrum there where in Matthew's gospel, there's more of this, this uh, I think it may fall short of everybody there becoming believers, but I think because the Roman centurion, the way he's portrayed in other gospels, he specifically became a believer. They all said, this, this is not an ordinary crucifixion. They weren't just, is he calling for Elijah? Let's see if Elijah, I mean, they're like, uh, this is the son of God. But I think the Roman centurion actually expressed faith. Uh, so, let's transition to the Lord's Supper. Obviously, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what you want to be thinking about, uh, whether you're waiting or if you've already received and you've gone back and you're waiting for the other...